Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today we bring you Herman Melville's The Chase, which is actually an excerpt from his best-selling work, Moby Dick. In the 1800s, whale oil was a necessity of life. Whale oil kept lanterns lit at night. And whale meat, skin, blubber, and organs provided an important source of protein, fats, vitamins, and minerals. Whale baleen was woven into baskets and used as fishing line. Whale bones were used for tool-making and carving. Today, we have discovered new sources which don't require whales. But when Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick in 1851, young men were signing up in droves for adventure and hard work on ships heading out of ports like Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, New London, and Providence. Whaling was dangerous work, and some of them never returned from the long voyages. We'll take our sponsor break before the narrative begins, so that we can deliver the story uninterrupted. And now, The Chase, by Herman Melville. That night, in the mid-watch, when the old man, as his wont at intervals, stepped forth from the scuttle at which he leaned, and went to his pivot hole, he suddenly thrust out his face fiercely, snuffing up the sea air as a sagacious ship's dog will, in drawing nigh to some barbarous isle. He declared that a whale must be near. Soon that peculiar odor, sometimes to a great distance given forth by the living sperm whale, was palpable to all the watch. Nor was any mariner surprised when, after inspecting the compass, and then the dog vane, and then ascertaining the precise bearing of the odor as nearly as possible, Ahab repeated the order the ship's course to be slightly altered, and the sail to be shortened. The acute policy dictating these movements was sufficiently vindicated at daybreak by the sight of a long sleek on the sea directly and lengthwise ahead, smooth as oil, and resembling in the pleated watery wrinkles bordering it the polished metallic-like marks of some swift tide rip at the mouth of a deep, rapid stream. Man the mastheads! Call all hands! Thundering with the butts of three clubbed handspikes on the foxhole deck, Dagoo roused the sleepers with such judgment claps that they seemed to exhale from the scuttle, so instantaneously did they appear with their clothes in their hands. "'What do you see?' cried Ahab, flattening his face to the sky. "'Nothing, nothing, sir,' was the sound hailing down in reply. "'Tick Allen sails! Stun sails alow and aloft, on both sides!' All sails being set, he now cast loose the lifeline, reserved for swaying him to the main royal masthead, and in a few moments they were hoisting him thither, when, while but two-thirds of the whale off, and while peering ahead through the horizontal vacancy between the main topsail and topgallant sail, he raised a gull-like cry in the air. There! There she blows! There she blows! A hump like a snow hill! It is Moby Dick! Fired by the cry which seemed simultaneously taken up by the three lookouts, the men on deck rushed to the rigging to behold the famous whale they had been so long pursuing. Ahab had now gained his final perch, some feet above the other lookouts. Tashtigo standing just beneath him on the cap of the topgallant mast, so that the Indian's head was almost on a level with Ahab's heel. From this height, the whale was now seen some mile or so ahead, at every roll of the sea revealing his high, sparkling hump, and regularly jetting his silent spout into the air. To the incredulous mariners, it seemed the same silent spout they'd so long ago withheld in the moonlit Atlantic and Indian Oceans. 
And did none of you see it before? cried Ahab, hailing the perched men all around him. I saw him almost at that same instant, sir, that Captain Ahab did, and I cried out, said Testigo. Not the same instant, not the same. No, the doubloon is mine. Fate reserved the doubloon for me. I only. None of you could have raised the white whale first. There she blows. There she blows. There she blows. There, again. And there again, he cried, in long-drawn, lingering, melodic tones, attuned to the gradual prolongings of the whale's visible jets. He's going to sound. In stun sails. Down top gallant sails. Stand by three boats, Mr. Starbuck. Remember, stay on board and keep the ship. Helm there. Luff, luff, a point. So steady, man, steady. There go flukes. No, no, only black water. Already the boat's there. Stand by, stand by. Lower me, Mr. Starbuck. Lower, lower. Quick, quicker. And he slid through the air to the deck. He's headed straight to leeward, sir, cried Stubb. Right away from us. Cannot have seen the ship yet. Be dumb, man. Stand by the braces. Hard down the hill. Brace up. Shiver her. Shiver her. So, well that. Boats. Boats. Soon all the boats but Starbucks were dropped. All the boat sails set. All the paddles blind with rippling swiftness, shooting to leeward, and Ahab heading the onset. A pale, death glimmer lit up Fadula's sunken eyes. A hideous motion gnawed his mouth. Like noiseless nautilus shells, their light prows sped through the sea, but only slowly they neared the foe. As they neared him, the ocean grew still more smooth, seemed drawing a carpet over its waves. It seemed a noon meadow, so serenely it spread. At length the breathless hunter came so nigh as seemingly unsuspecting prey that his entire dazzling hump was distinctly visible, sliding along the sea as if an isolated thing, and continually set in a revolving ring of finest, fleecy, greenish foam. We saw the vast, involved wrinkles of the slightly projecting head beyond. Before it, far out on the soft, Turkish-rugged waters, went the glistening white shadow from his broad, milky forehead, a musical rippling playfully accompanying the shade. And behind, the blue waters interchangeably flowed over into the moving valley of his steady wake, and on either hand bright bubbles arose and danced by his side. But these were broken again by the light toes of hundreds of gay fowl softly feathering the sea, alternate with their fitful flight, and like some flagstaff rising from the painted hull of an argosy, the tall but shattered pole of a recent lance projected from the white whale's back, and at intervals one of the cloud of soft-toed fowls hovering, and to and fro skimming like a canopy over the fish, silently perched and rocked on this pole, the long tail feathers streaming like pennants. A gentle joyousness, a mighty mildness of repose and swiftness, invested the gliding whale. Not the white bull Jupiter swimming away with ravished Europa clinging to his graceful horns, his lovely, leering eyes sideways intent upon the maid. With smooth, bewitching fleetness, rippling slate for the nuptial bower in Crete. Not Job, not that great majesty supreme, 
did surpass the glorified white whale as he so divinely swam. On each soft side, coincident with the parted swell, that foot once leaving him, then flowed so wide away, on each bright side, the whale shed off enticings. No wonder there had been some among the hunters who, namelessly transported and allured by all the serenity, had ventured to assail it, but had fatally found that quietude but the vesture of tornadoes. Yet calm, enticing calm, O oh, whale, thou glidest on, to all who for the first time eye thee, no matter how many in that same way thou mayst have be juggled and destroyed before. And thus, through the serene tranquillities of the tropical sea, among waves whose hand clappings were suspended by exceeding rapture, Moby Dick moved on, still withholding from sight the full terrors of his submerged trunk, entirely hiding the wretched hideousness of his jaw. But soon the forepart of him slowly rose from the water. For an instant this whole marbleized body formed a high arch, like Virginia's natural bridge, and warningly waving his battered flukes of the air, the grand god revealed himself, sounded, and went out of sight. Hoveringly halting and dipping on the wing, the white sea fowls longingly lingered over the agitated pool that he left behind. With oars apeak and paddles down, the sheets of their sails adrip, the three boats now stilly floated, awaiting Moby Dick's reappearance. An hour, said Ahab, standing rooted in his boat's stern, and he gazed beyond the whale's place, towards the dim blue spaces and wide, wooing vacancies to leeward. It was only an instant, for again his eyes seemed whirling round in his head as he swept the watery circle. The breeze now freshened. The sea began to swell. The birds! The birds! cried Tashtigo. In long Indian file, as when herons take wing, the white birds were now all flying towards Ahab's boat. And when within a few yards began fluttering over the water there, wheeling round and round with joyous, expectant cries, their vision was keener than man's. Ahab could discover no sign in the sea. But suddenly as he peered down and down into its depths, he profoundly saw a white living spot no bigger than a white weasel, with wonderful celerity uprising and magnifying as it rose, till it turned, and then they were plainly revealed two long crooked rows of white glistening teeth floating up the undiscoverable bottom. It was Moby Dick's open mouth and scrolled jaw, his vast, shadowed bulk still half-blending with the blue of the sea. The glittering mouth yawned beneath the boat like an open-doored marble tomb, and giving one sidelong sweep with the steering oar, Ahab whirled the craft aside from this tremendous apparition. Then, calling upon Fadala to change places with him, he went forward to the bows, and seizing Perth's harpoon, commanded his crew to grasp their oars and stand by the stern. Now, by reason of this timely spinning round the boat upon its axis, its bow, by anticipation, was made to face the whale's head while yet underwater. But as if perceiving this stratagem, Moby Dick, with that malicious intelligence ascribed to him, sidelingly transplanted himself, as it were, in an instant, shooting his plated head lengthwise beneath the boat. Through and through, through every plank in each rib, it thrilled for an instant, the whale obliquely lying on its back in the manner of a biting shark, 
slowly and feelingly taking its ballast full within its mouth so that the long, narrow, scrolled lower jaw curled high up into the open air and one of the teeth caught in a rowlock. The bluish pearl white of the inside of the jaw was within six inches of Ahab's head and reached higher than that. In this attitude, the white whale now shook the slight cedar as a mildly cruel cat her mouse. With astonished eyes, Padula gazed and crossed his arms, but the tiger-yellow crew were tumbling over each other's heads to gain the uttermost stern. And now, while both elastic gunwales were springing in and out as the whale dallied with the doomed craft in this devilish way, and from his body being submerged beneath the boat, he could not be darted at from the bows, for the bows were almost inside of him, as it were, and while the other boats involuntarily paused, as before a quick crisis impossible to withstand. Then it was that the monomaniac Ahab, furious within this tantalizing vicinity of his foe, which placed him alive and helpless in the very jaws he hated. Frenzied with all this, he seized the longbone from his naked hands and wildly strove to wrench it from its grip. As now he thus vainly strove, the jaw slipped from him. The frail gunwales bent in, collapsed, and snapped as both jaws, like enormous shears, sliding further aft, bit the craft completely in twain, and locked themselves fast again in the sea, midway between the two floating wrecks. These floated aside, the broken ends drooping, the crew at the stern wreck clinging to the gunnels, and striving to hold fast to the oars to lash them across. At that preluding moment, ere the boat was yet snapped, Ahab, the first to perceive the whale's intent, by the crafty upraising of his head, a movement that loosed his head for the time. At that moment his hand made one final effort to push the boat out of the bite, but only slipping further into the whale's mouth and tilting over sideways as it slipped. The boat had shaken off his hold on the jaw, spilled him out of it as he leaned to push, and so he fell flat-faced upon the sea. Ripplingly withdrawing from his prey, Moby Dick now lay at a little distance, vertically thrusting his oblong white head up and down in the billows, and at the same time slowly revolving his whole spindled body, so that when his vast wrinkled forehead rose, some twenty or more feet out of the water, the now rising swells, with all their confluent waves, dazzling broke against it, vindictively tossing their shivered spray still higher into the air. But soon resuming his horizontal attitude, Moby Dick swam swiftly round and round the wrecked crew, sideways, turning the water in his vengeful wake, as if lashing himself up to still another and more deadly assault. The sight of the splintered boat seemed to madden him, as the blood of grapes and mulberries cast before Antiochus's elephants in the Book of Maccabees. Meanwhile, Ahab, half smothered in the foam of the whale's insolent tail, and too much of a cripple to swim, though he could still keep afloat, even in the heart of such a whirlpool as that. Helpless Ahab's head was seen, like a tossed bubble which the least chance shock might burst. From the boat's fragmentary stern, Fidala incuriously and mildly eyed him. The clinging crew at the other drifting end could not succor him. More than enough was it for them to look to themselves, for so revolvingly appalling was the white whale's aspect, and so planetarily swift the ever-contracting circles he made, that he seemed horizontally swooping upon them. And though the other boats, unharmed, still hovered hard by, still they dared not pull into the eddy to strike, lest that should be the signal for the instant destruction of the jeopardized castaways. Ahab and all, 
nor in that case could they themselves hope to escape. With straining eyes, then, they remained on the outer edge of the direful zone, whose center had now become the old man's head. Meantime, from the beginning, all this had been described from the ship's mastheads, and squaring her yards, she had borne down upon the scene, and was now so nigh that Ahab and the water hailed her. Sail on them! Sail on them! But that moment a breaking sea dashed on him from Moby Dick and overwhelmed him for the time. But struggling out of it again, and chancing to rise on a towering crest, he shouted, Sail on the whale! Drive him off! The Pequod's prows were pointed, and breaking up the charmed circle, she effectually parted the white whale from his victim. As he suddenly swam off, the boat flew to the rescue. Dragged into Stubbs' boat with bloodshot, blinded eyes, the white brine caking in his wrinkles, the long tension of Ahab's bodily strength did crack and helplessly yielded to his body's doom. For a time, lying all crushed in the bottom of Stubbs' boat, like one trodden underfoot of herds of elephants. Far inland, nameless wails came from him as desolate sounds from out ravines. But this intensity of his physical prostration did but so much the more abbreviate it. In an instant's compass, great hearts sometimes condensed to one great pang. The sum total of those shallow pains kindly diffused to feebler men's whole lives. And so, such hearts, though summary in each one's suffering, still, if the gods decree it, in their lifetime aggregate a whole age of woe, wholly made up of instantaneous intensities. For even in their pointless centers, those noble natures contain the entire circumferences of inferior souls. The harpoon, said Ahab, halfway rising and draggingly leaning on one bended arm. Isn't safe. Aye, aye, sir, for it was not darted. This is it, said Stubb, showing it. Lay it before me. Any missing men? One, two, three, four, five. There were five oars, sir. And here are five men. That's good. Help me, ma'am. I wish to stand. So, I see him. There. There, going to leeward still. What a leaping spout. Hands off from me. The eternal sap runs up in Ahab's bones again. Set the sail. Out oars. The helm. It is often the case that when a boat is stove, its crew, being picked up by another boat, help to work that second boat, and the chase is thus continued with what is called double-banked oars. It was thus now, but the added power of the boat did not equal the added power of the whale, for he seemed to have treble-banked his every fin, swimming with a velocity which plainly showed that if now, under these circumstances, pushed on, the chase would prove indefinitely prolonged, if not a hopeless one nor could any crew endure for so long a period such an unintermitted, intense straining at the oar, a thing barely tolerable only in some one brief vicissitude. The ship itself then, as it sometimes happens, offered the most promising intermediate means of overtaking the chase. Accordingly, the boats now made for her and were soon swayed up to their cranes, the two parts of the wrecked boat having been previously secured by her, and then hoisting everything to her side and stacking her canvas high up, and sideways outstretching it with stun sails, like the double-jointed wings of an albatross, the Pequod herself bore down in the wake of Moby Dick. 
at the well-known methodic intervals, the whale's glittering spout was regularly announced from the manned mastheads. And when he would be reported as just gone down, Ahab would take the time, and then pacing the deck, binnacle watch in hand, so soon as the last second of the allotted hour expired, his voice was heard. Whose is the doubloon now? Do you see him? And if the reply was, No, sir, straight away he commanded them to lift him to his perch. In this way the day wore on. Ahab, now aloft and motionless, anon, unrestingly paced the planks. As he was thus walking, uttering no sound except to hail the men aloft, or to bid them to hoist a sail still higher, or to spread one to a still greater breadth, thus to and fro pacing, beneath his slouched half, at every turn he passed his own wrecked boat, which had been dropped upon the quarter-deck, and lay there, reversed, broken bow to shattered stern. At last he paused before it. As in an already overclouded sky, fresh troops of clouds will sometimes sail across, so over the old man's face there now stole some such added gloom as this. Stubb saw him pause, and perhaps intending, not vainly, though, to evince his own unabated fortitude, and thus keep up a valiant place in his captain's mind, he advanced, and eyeing the wreck, exclaimed, "'The thistle the ass refused. It pricked his mouth too keenly, sir.' "'Ha! What soulless thing is this that laughs before a wreck?' "'Man, did I not know thee brave as fearless fire? "'I could swear that were a poltroon. "'Groan nor laugh should be heard before a wreck.' "'Aye, aye, sir,' said Starbuck, drawing near. "'Tis a solemn sight, an omen, and an ill one.' "'Omen! The dictionary! "'If the gods think to speak outright to man, "'they will honorably speak outright, "'not shake their heads and give an old wives' darkling hint.' "'Begone! Ye two are the opposite poles of one thing. "'Starbuck is stub reversed, and stub is Starbuck, "'and ye two are all mankind, "'and Ahab stands alone among the millions of the peopled earth, "'nor gods nor men his neighbors. "'Cold! Cold! I shiver. "'How now? Aloft there! Do you see him? "'Sing out for every spout, though he spout ten times a second. The day was nearly done. Only the hem of his golden robe was rustling. Soon it was almost dark, but the lookout men still remained unset. "'Can't see the spout now, sir. Too dark!' cried a voice from the air. "'How was he heading when last seen?' "'As before, sir. Straight to leeward.' "'Good. He'll travel slower now. Tis night.' "'Down royals and top-gallant stun-sails, Mr. Starbuck. "'We must not run over him before morning. "'He's making a passage now, and may heave to a while. "'Helm there! Keep her full before the wind. "'Aloft! Come down. "'Mr. Stubb, send a fresh hand to the foremast head, "'and see it man till morning.' "'Then advancing towards the doubloon in the mainmast. "'Men, this gold is mine, for I earned it. "'but I shall let it abide here till the white whale is dead. "'And then, whosoever of ye first raises him, "'upon the day he shall be killed, "'this gold is that man's. "'And if on that day I shall again raise him, "'then ten times its sum shall be divided among all of ye. "'Away now. The deck is thine, sir.' 
and so saying, he placed himself halfway within the scuttle, and slouching his hat, stood there till dawn, except when at intervals, rousing himself, to see how the night wore on. And there is our excerpt from the adventure, Moby Dick, by Herman Melville. Hope you enjoyed it. For those of you who have not read the novel, and are not familiar with the story, I won't ruin the ending for you. But I can tell you, it's very, very dramatic. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. As you know, we really appreciate reviews, and we've had some recent ones lately that I want to share with you. Most excellent, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, five stars. And it says, five star. That one from Ed358, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, excellent narration of classic stories, five stars, 1001 Classic Short Stories. I looked for well-told stories with quality sound and found this on a search for stories on Apple's iTunes podcast. I've clicked follow and I've added auto downloads. I'll also check in on Spotify as that helps me when listening through my Amazon Alexa speaker. Thank you, John, for your time and attention to reading the older classic stories. Down from Anne, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great stories, 1001 classic short stories, five stars. John's a great narrator. I've lost myself for hours listening to these great stories. Down from Kevin, 5494, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one's just coming in now for 1001 Stories for the Road, where we're currently reading the great mystery, Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. It reads, North London Listener, 1001 Stories for the Road, five stars. I read the Moonstone many years ago, so I know the ending. But that seems to make it even more enjoyable to listen to the twists and turns and recognize the clues dropped so skillfully by the author. Down from North London fan, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And right behind that, Big Fan, 1001 Stories, and John, 1001 Stories for the Road, five stars. I'm a big fan of all the 1001 stories, especially Stories for the Road. I enjoy being introduced to new stories, like the Moonstone, that I might not have read on my own. Keep up the entertaining podcast. Thanks, John. You're the best. Down from Kajsa 2, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you so much, everyone, for sending us these reviews. They mean so much to us, and they help our readers decide to give us a try. As you know, we bring new episodes every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at noon Eastern time. Until our next story, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. <laughs>